Joshua S. Porter is known as the frontman of Showbread. Also, he's a thought-provoking lyricist, he's a vocalist, a pastor, and he's the author of With All Its Teeth, Sex, Violence, Profanity, and the Death of Christian Art. Thanks for coming to The Antidote for a new visit, Josh. Oh, of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let me take you back to Showbread. When the band started up, could you ever have imagined yourself as a pastor or as an author? An author, maybe. Uh, That was always an aspiration of mine ever since I was very young. But I don't think that I would have... Not, I, I don't think I would have imagined myself becoming a pastor, not because I was adverse to that idea or had some you know, long-standing issue against the, the office of church leadership mm-hmm. per se. It just wasn't anything that was, that was on my radar, so it, ca- it came as a surprise, even though it, it was something that took um, you know, years and years uh, from its inception to its fruition. But no, I did not. Sure, I thought I'd write stuff, but I didn't think I'd be a pastor. Well, let's talk about what you have written. With all its teeth, sex, violence, profanity, and the death of Christian art. I mean, talk about (laughs) attention-grabbing. That title might actually alienate some people without them even opening the book. Yeah, I'm big on alienating titles, apparently. If I had a nickel for every time someone took verbal issue with the title of my last book, Death to Deconstruction, uh, I would have more money than royalties I made from the book. But I like, and it's not something of, you know, that I came up with. I've always been drawn to pieces with provocative titles, even misleadingly provocative titles, the kind of um, titles that make one, you know, ask, well, what the heck is that all about? And and it becomes, I think the title becomes part of the aesthetic of an overall work. So they're important to me, uh, and I like, I mean, obviously, something of a provocateur, or at least I've tried to be in my work, so the title is part of that to me. <laughs> you absolutely did that with Showbread, because so many people would have considered that band as provocative. You know, it just didn't fit comfortably inside the Christian arts bubble. Yeah, I learned that. <laughs> that was my experience from being in that I don't mean to oversell it. There were, uh, you know, Showbread was a a small band with a a relatively small reach. It existed in a certain niche of the, um, I guess, you know, uh, music subculture or underground culture, if you like, of punk rock music. And there were lots of folks, you know, among the few folks that knew and cared about Showbread, there were lots of folks who really connected with that aesthetic as confrontational as it could be. But um, there was a kind of consistent uh, narrative about that band that it was it was too Christian to sit comfortably in a non-Christian space, and it didn't adhere to the Christian music rulebook enough to sit comfortably in a Christian music space either. So it was kind of a alienating experience. Well, it certainly connected with me, and I've always appreciated it. Well, thanks, man. And that's why you're probably the only guest I've had on for a third visit. <laughs> so there, oh, wow. you've wow. got an honorary title now. I appreciate that. Yeah, I should get a badge or something. Now, I'm sure you didn't just wake up one morning saying, I'm going to write a book about God and art. So what actually inspired this? Um, It was years of conversations, arguments, debates with, I think, mostly well-meaning Christians in my life, and in some cases, maybe just more so confrontational um, Christians in my life, that had taken issue with either the art that I've made or the art that I appreciate. Um, And I, I found myself on the defensive end of those conversations ever since I was you know, in my early adolescence and started to read Kafka or Sylvia Plath and, or, you know, when I was even younger than that and my dad bought me my first Aerosmith record and I was like, oh man, I want to be in a, in a rock band. Um, the kind of art that I've identified with, art and entertainment that I've identified with, has um, often been, not always, but often been uh, the kind of thing that might... Um, <laughs> provoke the ire of a certain kind of conservative Christian sensibility. 
um, the kind of art that's most influenced stuff that I've made in that same vein. And so early on, making any or showing, demonstrating any interest to write or to make music, um, even even as you know a young Christian, uh, there was this pushback from other Christians in my life that was like, "Hey, this is not how Christians make art, or this is not the kind of art that's appropriate for a Christian to make." And those accusations or those claims never really sat well with me. But I didn't have any kind of thoughtful rebuke. Um, I had some common sense rebukes, maybe, and and I, and I could probably poke around in the Bible and be like, "Well, what about this? And what about this?" Um, mm-hmm. But after you know a few years of um, those conversations resurfacing as a pastor, I decided to you know take a, a couple of years to research and put my thoughts together and um, and actually have all all my thoughts and and arguments, if you like, though I don't don't like to think of it that way. It's more of like a, I think of it as like a biblical theology of of art, and that includes art that one might find offensive or obscene. Um, But I like the idea of having all my thoughts together in one place, and and that eventually became um, a grad school thesis project, and then eventually became the book. The book itself is about art, but really, how can art be defined? I mean, because really isn't doing so somewhat subjective? It is, yeah. That was the first problem I ran into in my research, is that if you consult art historians, um, and if you look at the writings of art critics and artists, down throughout art history and down throughout church history, because a lot of our great um, artists and art thinkers have been historically Christians, uh, there's no consistent consensus you'll find on a definition of exactly what art is. So I started there, actually, just trying to research in, in academia and art history to look for some kind of through line on, on what is art in the first place. And I did mm-hmm. find a lot of helpful um, definitions, some in conflict with one another, but you, you, know, you, you start to piece together an overall mosaic of what you might call art. And then I migrated over to the scriptures and starting with Genesis and going all the way to Revelation of trying to um, put together a definition of, well, what is art as God defines it? What kind of art does God make? Um, What kind of art does God commission or command? So the definition I end up working with in the book is, it's really simple in a single sentence, like when God or people create things that communicate uh, ideas, emotions, or aesthetics, that's essentially art. And I think the important part about that definition is that it doesn't say anything qualitative about art. It doesn't say it has to be of a certain quality necessarily, because quality is subjective. And it doesn't say mm-hmm. anything about a, any kind of moral standard for art as well, because again, I think you know that that's also subjective and open to the interpretation of the the individual or a community. So to me, it's as simple as when, you know, when, when God or people create things that communicate ideas, emotions, or aesthetics, that's essentially art. Well, of course, you've created a real problem for me today because, (laughs) you know, when discussing songs with an artist, it's a lot simpler because it's got a lot less content to it. Not so with a book. But yeah. I guess at least with, with all its teeth, we can at least get into a few nuggets. Sure. The book often speaks about censorship. Should we ever actually endorse censorship? As you mentioned, I guess, really, who decides? Because censorship really can be a slippery slope. It is, yeah. I think that, you know, in the book, I work with two different kind of definitions of what one might describe as censorship. And one is like a kind of um, individualistic discernment uh, that makes certain judgment calls about what they will and won't consume in art and entertainment, which I think is completely up to the discretion of the individual um, and within the accountability of their community if they're Christians. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't uh, enforce or, or even suggest a kind of logic that's like. 
anything goes for everyone and everyone should be open to anything because I think people have unique sensibilities. Um, and for a disciple of Jesus, uh, they should demonstrate unique concern for the kinds of things that could possibly provoke them to sin. Or the language I use in the book is that could aggravate their flesh in the language of the New Testament. Um, that said, I don't think personally that it's appropriate for disciples of Jesus or, you know, people who don't follow Jesus, for people on the, you know, conservative side of the socio-political spectrum or people on the progressive side of the socio-political spectrum. I don't think it's appropriate for anyone to enforce a kind of censorship for anyone else. I don't think that it's ever a wise idea to say, I think that this is immoral or dangerous and therefore no one else should have access to it or you know mm. these certain groups shouldn't have access to it now obviously you get into the weeds um there are certain caveats parents of course should exercise discernment and discretion over what their kids have access to that's not censorship that's just raising kids um so obviously you know and you know in certain contexts and environments uh would i show or share certain pieces of art that are important to me but might offend someone else of, of course you know i would exercise discernment in certain contexts um but the idea that we should ban certain books or um you know bleep out certain words or, or the, these kinds of things the censoring something overall as a work or even that you know in today's kind of cancel culture climate the idea that an author or artist or musician themselves are problematic, therefore their work should be censored to the public. This is something that I disagree with fundamentally. Um, I don't think that censorship is ever a good idea. And I think that, you know, you inevitably and immediately run into problems with God and with the scriptures if you kind of enter into what I call like the dark hallway of censorship. <laughs> well, here's a quote directly from the book that deals with that where you wrote, as with works of art, blanket statements about how all audiences should receive artists falls short. The effort to cleanse the world of art created by bad people ultimately cleanses the world of art itself. You really feel like that would crush art. I do, yeah. I think that the idea that we should evaluate art based on the um, perceived morality or um, actions of the artist is is nothing new. It's been happening, you know, for centuries. I think it's a doomed enterprise. The idea of cancel culture, the way we understand it, is obviously a, a semi-new phenomenon. But you know, I go as at least as far back as to characters like you know Da Vinci or um, Charles Dickens or Tolstoy in the in the book, and talk about uh, the way that any given artist is going to have some kind of spotty personal record at best, if not what we might describe as like flagrant evil in their own personal history, uh, myself included mm -hmm. and, and everyone else. And that, you know, this is not necessarily a uniquely Christian perspective. I think that any kind of common sense judgment could agree that people are messed up. The human condition is messed up. People make mistakes and, and sometimes people are a mixed bag and they do wonderful things and awful things. And sometimes it seems as if all they do is one or the other. But the truth is, and this, this is where the kind of Christian worldview enters the conversation, everyone is terribly broken and guilty of, of horrific sin. So if we go around looking in people's personal histories and or, you know, when some kind of new revelation enters the public consciousness about what an artist did or has done, and whether or not we should evaluate their art based on the, that behavior. Uh, eventually, if it's consistently carried out, just in, you end up with no art whatsoever. Uh, if you're being fair and if exercising some some level of equity in that kind of practice, everyone mm -hmm. is going to let us down, and then their art has to go. Now, on the other hand, I would say that I totally understand if news of an artist's indiscretion colors a person's experience of their art, well, then, of course, I would never say deal with it and enjoy their art anyway. I, I get that, like, especially if there's, like, kind of a deep connection to an artist and their work, and then you learn something that's uniquely upsetting to you. 
um, mm-hmm. or if not the whole world, well, of course, that can color your experience of their art. The example I use in the book is of a conversation between Jerry Seinfeld and Stephen Colbert, where they're talking about whether or not they were able to enjoy uh, one of their shared heroes, Bill Cosby, as a comedian. Right after learning about um, his his crimes and him being found guilty of, of you know, rape and sexual assault. And um, Stephen Colbert said that because he lo- had loved Cosby so deeply and admired him so profoundly as an artist, as a comedian, that it kind of um, colored his body of work so negatively that he finds it really difficult to revisit. And on the other hand, Jerry Seinfeld said that he felt as if the work itself stood up on its own and, you know, without uh, obviously approving of or anything that Cosby had done as a person, that his work as a comedian um, was Mm -hmm. the greatest, in Seinfeld's language, the greatest body of work of any comedian. And and I think that that, those are two examples that I think are um, equally understandable to me, that there will be people who say, you know what, because of what I know about this artist now, this is harder for me to enjoy. And there are other people who can make a distinction between like their gifting, what they were able to accomplish through their God-given ability as an artist, and who they were as a person in their brokenness. So what I have a problem with is someone saying, hey, this person did this terrible thing, therefore we should scrub the record of their work. You know what I mean? Kind of happened in the Christian music. It does. They would just be turfed out and all of their music would never be played on radio again. Of course, yeah, that's it for all of us. Well, let's talk about Christian artists, because that comes up in the book with all its teeth. You wrote, When the artist is concerned for or compelled by an audience, ever fretful of the audience's reaction, they embody a kind of dishonesty in their work. They say only what they think the audience wants them to say. They censor what they think the audience isn't prepared to receive. They sanitize that which offends and simply that which challenges. They cater to expectations and existing norms. And this, in a nutshell, is the death of Christian art. But you know, the point is, is that so often, art isn't purely from the artist. Because they're directed, or maybe even manipulated is a better word, by record labels, promoters, and the media in general. Yeah, I agree. Existing in the space, the overlap between art and commerce, as someone who's done that throughout my career, uh, if you want to call it that, and even like a small career like mine, or it becomes a very tenuous tightrope walk. Even like in a band like the band I was in, and the limited you know space that we had in the the Christian music industry, we're on a record label, and we have an A and R person at the label. We have booking agents, and we have a manager, and and so obviously there is concern on behalf of a record label to sell records by design. Or even a record label with some amount of artistic integrity, they can't continue to function without selling records. Um, certainly, there's incentive on behalf of the booking agent and the manager to maintain a certain kind of popularity, a rapport with an audience in order for them to get paid and to be able to do their jobs at all. So it's not as if like there's some kind of nefarious secret agenda. We we all know the kind of relationships into which we're entering when we become professionals on some level where you know writing a book Mm -hmm. is the same kind of thing like working with an editor at a publisher and um i'm a unique kind of nightmare for my editors they will often send back notes that are saying you know i i think you need to be clearer here i think that this um you you've lost yourself in kind of poetic prose and and the point is slipping and (laughs) i'm i'm more concerned with um, the aesthetic value of the writing often than its, you know, clarity per se. Obviously, I don't want it to make no sense to anyone because I'm writing Christian nonfiction in this case. But of course, this is also coming from somebody who is a lyricist. Yeah, exactly. So it seems to be yeah. a natural progression. It does, yeah. And I, and I think of myself primarily as a writer of fiction before a writer of nonfiction, even though at this point more people have read my Nonfiction, but I like you know to write. Uh, this is going to sound like a pretentious word, but literarily, 
or my genre of choice is literary fiction. So that's what I'm reading every day, and that's the way I tend to write or attempt to write. You can argue I don't do it very well, but that's what I'm trying to do. So when other people enter into the process, the publishers or the editors or the, um, the readers at the publisher who are saying, like, be clearer. Their concern is not necessarily aesthetic value; it's clarity, and you know, and being able to sell books or move units. And I think that there's a compromise a professional artist makes in some cases where they have to like do that tightrope walk with minimal compromise. At least that's what I'm trying to do. But I think that there's a different kind of compromise that offers itself up entirely to the audience's expectation. The kind of compromise that says, what is going to increase my popularity, increase my accolades, or the audience's approval of me, and like I said in the book, kind of minimize any pushback or any, um, you know, even the risk of confusing the audience. And in my experience, that's the kind of thing that, inevitably become self-censorship and inevitably hamstrings the creative process and you end up with it's art but art that has become a shadow of what it could be and not to you know pull this card out on people because <laughs> it's the ultimate Jesus juke but I just don't see that kind of concern in the you know the creative output of Jesus. It seems to me that Jesus often intentionally alienated his audience and creatively with parables or with grotesque metaphors. Mm-hmm. Even in straightforward teaching, you know, gouge out your eye or cut off your arm, or in parables, you know, the servant cut to pieces, uh, or in the sudden use of grotesque word pictures, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and his audience would often plead with him to explain himself you know like even his inner circle his community his disciples would come to him and say like why do you insist on parables like not do you get that no one understands you and in one case at least that we have documented in the gospels you know like do you not know that you've offended the people to whom you're speaking and and jesus essentially says and obviously i'm paraphrasing which is a dangerous thing to do with the bible but jesus essentially says like it's on purpose i'm doing this on purpose this is by design um there's a creative intention here i think you know if jesus could have under the christian creative industry standards been like well you can't just stand up in a crowd of people that don't know any better and say eat my flesh and drink my blood that's a gross thing to say and and they don't get the (laughs) metaphor so what we need to do is first explain the lord's supper and then explain um, what it's going to mean in the future have an uplifting message at the end and and just clear away any kind of like potentially offensive material he doesn't do that and i think that the imagery of communion of the eucharist of the lord's supper is as powerful as it is for those of us who practice it because jesus selected those grotesque images um, and assigned to them such powerful resonance without censoring himself without clarifying himself in the moment anyway or without clearing away any confusion and, and forcing it to become some kind of uh, G-rated, immediately comprehensible, non-analogy. In the book, you've brought up a showbread song, Dear John Piper, Stillbirth in Space. You wrote about the reactions some listeners had to the song, and then you stated song lyrics are not theological essays. Shouldn't something like that be obvious to any listener? Well, you would think, and I, you know, I... I think that the critics of that particular song were incensed by it for obvious reasons. Um, even the title, I, <laughs> I think, kind of gives away. Yeah. And so I'm not trying to say that, oh, if you have any critique of a song lyrics, you know, or even these particular song lyrics, then you don't get it and you don't know how to engage art thoughtfully. But specifically with that song and with the um, pushback that I was privy to, of that particular song, there were often critics who were engaging these song lyrics um, as if I had written, you know, a thesis paper and they're going point for point. Okay, so this line in the song is incorrect interpretation of, you know, systematic theology for this reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And this line in the song, this is incorrect for this reason. I can point to this Bible verse to prove it. 
And in that sense, it was kind of, and I don't mean this in a um, uh, an arrogant kind of way, but in a shared sense of the silliness of life, uh, it was it was funny to me that these lines, which are clearly like meant to uh, sit within the very specific context of a punk rock song, albeit theologically dense and with with theological buzzwords in them, if you like that kind of language, but mm-hmm. the, the, <laughs> to engage them as if I was into you right or something was was very funny to me. And it to me, it says something about um, the kind of Western Christian tendency to fail to take art on its own terms. I think it would have been entirely appropriate to sit down and dissect those song lyrics and like unpack the metaphors, unpack the analogies or the word pictures and be like, what is this particular line getting at and what does it mean? Because if it means this, then I disagree with its conclusion. But if it means that, you know, I like to engage it as if it is a work of art, you know, and I Mm -hmm. use um, examples like, I think this is something I brought up in my in Death to Deconstruction book, the idea of looking at um, one of Francis Bacon, um, who was kind of a, uh, a surrealist painter who painted these kind of nightmarish um, visions and often did self-portraits. And he did them within his genre and context. And the idea of like missing the mark to look at one of Francis Bacon's self-portraits and saying like, well, he didn't look like that. He didn't have purple paint on his face or, you know what I mean? Like, uh, well, of course, he didn't literally look exactly like this, but this is an artistic reinterpretation of his his face. It's a self-portrait according to his context and genre. So I have no issue with someone engaging a song like that on those terms, like engage it as a song and lyrics as lyrics. But to sit down and do like, you know, it was the kind of thing that became the fodder for discernment bloggers to play on their podcast and, and pick apart point for point. <laughs> and if you, if you want to do that, then, I mean, it's just real easy work because it's a three-minute song with, you know, X amount of lines in it. It's not uh, a treaty from N.T. Wright, um, but it really makes for some funny, funny arguments. That ties into something else. This is a couple of different statements you've made that have sort of blended together. Art is obviously complex, but it's more than that. Art is transcendent inarguably fundamental to the human experience across time and culture for all people. And it's always been that way because God made it up. I do believe that. I think that that's kind of an inarguable point. You know, I think that the misunderstanding that I've often run into in conversations about art and entertainment is that even to use the word art suddenly elevates the conversation to some kind of um, high society status, and the non-creative has to excuse themselves from the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. But art, in my definition, could be a piece of furniture or a billboard or, or you know, a TV show, a film, a song. Um, and yes, of course, it could be something that you'd find in a fine art museum or it could be the great American novel. But it includes that entire spectrum and everything you know, from the one side to the other, high art, low art, everything in between. These are subjective definitions, but we tend to fall into them. And then we think like, oh, well, the appreciation of art is something that's reserved for you know, a certain kind of intellectual culture in which I have no place because I'm not creative or because I'm not a film snob or because I don't read, um, you know, historical fiction or some such thing. And it's just not the case. You know, even if you imagine yourself as immune to the spiritual discipline of art appreciation or kind of excluded from it, excused from it, um, you've got a real problem because every single day of your life you will be inundated with images that are the product of someone's creative imagination, or you're going to interact with things that were the result of the creative process. Even if you go to a restaurant and eat food, um, you'll be privy Mm -hmm. to the culinary art. So it's not a matter of whether or not uh, someone, you know, has the kind of palette that can interpret and appreciate art. It's something that every single human being does without thinking about it, really. We do it every single day. And I think that the not thinking about it has led to a kind of deficiency in the collective Christian consciousness, or at least in a certain wing 
of the collective Christian consciousness in the modern world in which we don't know how to thoughtfully engage art because it's not a muscle we've exercised. It's not a spiritual discipline that we've practiced in any kind of meaningful way. We just kind of take art and entertainment as it comes. And, uh, and maybe we have a working definition of what art is and isn't and what we like and don't like, but it's ambiguous and it's kind of, you know, unrefined. And that's a, that's a real shame because I think that without um, refining the spiritual discipline of art appreciation, you run into all kinds of problems with your interpretation of scripture, um, what the Bible is and isn't, how to read the Bible. And, and not to sound uh, too dramatic or hyperbolic, but I honestly believe that it can create a real deficit in your relational intimacy with God himself because God has demonstrated himself to prefer connecting with human beings through um, wild, imaginative art all throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, whether that's in visions or with highly symbolic sign acts, you know, the sacrificial systems in the Old Testament or things like baptism mm-hmm. and communion in the New Testament. Um, God seems to prefer art and imagery and aesthetics over, you know, commonplace, clear communication that would be a lot easier on us. Um, but God doesn't, he's an artist, so he likes things to be wild or even abstract or strange. Um, So, refining what we think about art and how we engage it is, I think, um, as crucial as refining and practicing our discipline of of prayer or or reading the scriptures or fasting. All the other spiritual disciplines should have space for the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. Well, appreciation and giving it value— because you had this to say about yourself and, and your music. God had, in a certain sense, called me to do this work as a musician, but that seems somehow insufficient in the din of being constantly vocationally discredited. I let them tell me what I was doing was a glorified hobby, a fantasy world doomed and immature, easy street. Some of my most dismissive critics were other followers of Jesus. So why is it that people don't value artists? Well, I think we've bought into an idea that art as a vocation is expendable at best and at worst a kind of non-reality or a delusion or a fantasy or somehow less valuable, less credible than a different kind of work, be it blue collar or white collar. You know, and the, that's a realization that it took me years to make. I was, as I say in the book, like I spent years traveling the world with this rigorous schedule and fulfilling all these different kind of vocational needs, like wearing all these different hats of being a booking agent or a designer or a marketing person or working with a record label, playing every single night, um, you know, becoming a human atlas of the United States. And, and it was the kind of work that honestly not a lot of people are willing to do. I mean, that my experience was that we'd often bring people into this world of touring and after, you know, a single rotation, they'd say, you know what, this life is too brutal, I can't do it. And then I'd come home and, and let people <laughs> uh, in their, you know, nine-to-fivers and office jobs, which there's nothing wrong with, I do that now, so I'm not beating up on that whatsoever, but tell me, like, oh, that's not a real job. When are you going to get a real job? <laughs> And, and for some reason, for years, I kind of assumed that what, what they were saying was true, that I was like, well, what I'm doing, it's, it's fun, and I'm happy to do it right now. Yeah, it's hard, but at some point, you know, I'll, I'll have a real gig. And I realized that I had subconsciously kind of bought into this idea of art as a hobby, art as supplemental rather than crucial. You know, the artists that have meant the most to me and who have quite frankly changed my life, changed my perception of the world, made a significant profound impact on my spirituality, my understanding of God. Um, I'm very glad that they didn't say to themselves, eh, this is not a real job, (laughs) Uh, that they dedicated themselves wholly to their vocation. And throughout church history, um, we have historically made space um, the church has played patron to artists and the arts and, and made space to value and encourage the artists among us that we we actually need you. Your role in the community of God's people and in the world is crucial. Um, but today it's, it's more like something that you have to convince uh, the naysayers that 
the role of the artist, the vocation of the artist is a credible one, is a necessary one. And I, and I wish that that wasn't so. That's something that I hope um, will, will change in the years to come, that we will make more space to empower artists within our communities and, and to the hard work that they have before them. Of course, like any job, an artist can be um, lazy or undedicated in their craft, but not necessarily, mm-hmm. not by design. You know, Some artists I've known are the, the hardest working, most dedicated people that I have known. So, uh, and, and we need, they need, we need um, the support of God's people, the support of the church, the community of God's people to come alongside them and say, like, what you're doing is, is crucial to the kingdom of God. How can we participate and encourage you? The same way we come alongside people in our community that do good work and say, like, what you're doing is important. We believe in you. We want to support you. How can we walk alongside with you and be your people? No, it's true what you've said, because historically, when societies originally were developing, once they get to a specific population base, they actually had enough surplus to be able to support the artistic base. And those were the people that shaped their culture and often their entire worldview. Yes, you know, um, it's funny the way that, given everything I've just said about the kind of tragic devaluing of the arts as vocation, it hasn't really stopped the church or society from continuing to place a tremendous amount of value on certain works of art and entertainment. You know, when something comes along that kind of breaks through the malaise of entertainment overload, a film or even a filmmaker, or a certain kind of, in you know, in the Christian world, a certain book is written, or a certain um, song captures the imagination of churches across the world, and, and we're all singing it. We are happy to assign it a kind of um, profound value that, wow, thank God for this thing, and that thank God that it was, it was made. But it's almost like it has to prove itself to us first, and then we'll accept it as um, an important work of art. You know, uh, we have certain mm-hmm. filmmakers that you know, living filmmakers at the moment who exist in the very rare overlap of like box office success and what one might describe as like art house cinema. People like uh, your Christopher Nolans or Denis Villeneuve or Paul Thomas Anderson, and so every mm-hmm. now and then, you know, a movie like I don't know Oppenheimer is one from this last year comes along and it becomes a conversation piece across all kinds of different um, cultural standards. People inside and outside the church are talking about like um, not just a piece of filmmaking, but a time in history and what it means. And suddenly it becomes an important part of our cultural conversation. But then if someone in that same space were to say, bring up something that was not considered high art, was not considered relevant per se, according to certain, you know. Like Barbie? <laughs> well, sure. Barbie, for example, though, you know, I guess Barbie was uh, critically acclaimed as well, uh, I guess, according to a different kind of standard and context. Um it becomes less like, oh, ha-ha, yeah, sure, um, but excuse yourself from the conversation. Something has to prove itself to a certain high art standard, which is why you know my definition for what art is doesn't have anything qualitative included or moral included, because I think that you know it just depends on the individual sensibilities or the com- needs of the community whether or not something resonates. Um, and if we allow ourselves to... Um, open our appreciation of art wide enough to accommodate things that, sure, break through to the highest levels of cultural conversation. Yeah, absolutely. We should be talking about and dissecting and discussing those important works of art. But also just like on a basic level, challenging ourselves to reach out beyond our preferred genres and mediums and learning to appreciate things that we, I don't know, we may have scoffed at by reflex. Or if someone in our community is like, this is something that meant a lot to me or spoke to me, instead of um, laughing or, or writing it off, as like, well, that's not a real work of art, to engage that in conversation. Why? Why did that speak to you? What can I learn from it? What am I missing that I don't understand it the way that you do? You know, the issue I have is that the Christian art scene tends to be getting narrower and narrower of focus all the time. It's the bright, happy, cheery songs that always get played, and you see very little else coming back into the marketplace. Where are the challenging songs? 
I agree. This is a conversation I've had um, with friends recently on the heels of the book's release, which is that in certain wings of the Christian music world, we have space to be challenged or pushed or to confront ugliness, but we have almost no space to explore anything other than redemptive, uplifting, positive, upwards uh, directed worship for Mm -hmm. our kind of liturgical gatherings or church spaces. Um, And, you know, a friend of mine was saying that even as a recent example, in light of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine and um, reading these awful stories in the news, that stepping into church on Sunday um, they weren't saying that they stood in the back and crossed their arms because there wasn't, wasn't some kind of acknowledgement of the awful things going on in the world, but their mind was distracted by the undeniable violence and evil unfolding you know, on the 24-hour news cycle, and then to come into a church space and sing like songs that, and I'm being reductive here, but seem to communicate like everything's great, everything's great because God is good, God is good disingenuous or at least felt as if they were incomplete and wondered like do we have space for lament with art do we have space for grieving with art do we have space to um like the the psalms uh question god in art or to call out to god in art and you know like some of our very best poems in the bible where are you what are you doing everything seems messed up um And what I said was that I think that, you know, we can and should have space for all of those things, just like we can and should have space for our positive, uplifting, God is good worship songs. And in fact, those uh, overtly positive, redemptive, God is always good worship songs, to me, resonate much more when we do have space for lament and for the confrontation Mm -hmm. and and grappling with tragedy and evil in the world, they almost become an act of defiance against evil in the world to to acknowledge that things are not the way that they should be, and yet God is who he says he is. Those two ideas in the same place make for a very powerful artistic worship experience. You've summed that up so well with this, art has no rules, it is not safe, It does not accommodate preference nor bow to sensitivity. Oblivious to trigger warnings, art refuses to honor safe spaces and ever-evolving cultural sensibilities. Art can be redemptive, responsible, socially conscious, sensitive, positive, uplifting. But it doesn't have to be. Art can and often should be offensive, outrageous, painful, scary, and upsetting. So that's quite the statement that you put out. But are you suggesting that, or are you going to set it up as a rule? Uh, I think that, as a general rule, the the rule is for the person receiving the art more so than it is for the person creating the art. Because I think that to enter into a creative project, imposing a kind of rule on oneself to either be all positive or be all negative, to be uplifting, encouraging, redemptive, or be offensive, obscene, um, I think that that's disingenuous as well. I think that, you know, I've made some things throughout my creative tenure for the few people who care about them that I'm sure have made people wonder, why does it have to be so outrageous? Why this imagery or why these ideas? But I I sincerely don't sit down to make any project and think, how can I be crass or how can I make something that is going to offend someone? Um, on my best day, I honestly just sit down with, you know, an idea for a story or a song and I try to write, uh, you know, like compelled by the spirit of God, honestly and authentically in such a way that honors my aesthetic preferences. I like to make the kind of thing, this kind of song that I want to hear, the, the kind of lyrics that I would like to read, the kind of book that I would like to read. Um, and then I find that that tends to connect with a certain kind of audience and other people not so much. That's totally fine. I'm, I'm very happy with that. I'm very resigned to that fact. You know, I don't want to make something that's for, quote unquote, everyone. I think our best art is decidedly not for everyone. <laughs> um, and that's why we have so many different kinds of art and artists, and that's perfectly okay. But I'm also content to learn from art 
or be inspired from art that is not for me per se. Meaning, you know, if I watch the kind of movie that's just not my aesthetic, it's not um, my thing, it's not my genre, whatever. Um, there are things that I can appreciate about it aesthetically. There are things that I can appreciate about it, its craftsmanship, and enter into a meaningful discussion with other people who do like it, or an argument with people who do like it for fun. Um, so I think that it, the rule about art doesn't have to be redemptive. It can be offensive. Uh, it doesn't have to be offensive. It can be redemptive. Is more in the way that we understand and appreciate it. I think that approaching any given work of art as if it needs to adhere to certain guidelines, certain sensibilities, or certain rules, that it can't go too far, that it has to go too far, inevitably bankrupts the creative experience as the recipient of the creativity or as the creator of the art. I would rather us kind of expand our palettes and our mature in our spiritual discipline of art appreciation so that we take that as a given. We understand that some of our best, most profound art might be deeply upsetting, or it could be the kind of thing that is, um, you know, chicken soup for the soul, just so uplifting, <laughs> feels great, and you feel like uh, it puts a smile on your face, tears of joy. That's that's a wonderful, worthwhile experience as well. Um, but so is, I think, the kind of movie, the kind of novel, the kind of song that you would never use words like entertaining or uplifting to describe it the kind of like experience that might be brutal or upsetting or even offensive in some sense but that uh, evokes in you a, a response that communicates an important idea or an emotional resonance or an aesthetic value that changes your worldview for the better even just a little bit something i really appreciate about all its teeth is when it speaks about investing time in art I totally understand that, but every day I'm sent so much music, and it's so time-consuming to go through it all. And, you know, I may watch a couple of movies each month, no television at all, and I have so limited time for reading. <laughs> you know, of course, except for your book, obviously. <laughs> I guess it's time for you to judge then, Josh. Am I missing out on too many things? No, I don't think so, and because I'm right there with you. I think it's a, it's a season of life and stage of discipleship kind of thing, as is with anything. You know, I, there was a time in my season of life when I could actually read and did read a novel a week, sometimes two novels a week, and my process was just go to the library, look on the new releases shelf, that has a cool cover, that has an interesting name, I'll check these two out for this week. Read them both, take them back, get two new ones, um, and would read dozens and dozens of novels in a year that way. And not because, you know, like I had a reading goal for the year or something, just because that was the way I preferred to be entertained and enrich myself creatively. But now I got mm. three small kids. The youngest one is two. They require a lot of attention and um, guidance. The priority in my life is not reading two novels a week. It's, you know, like making sure my children are alive and fed and that I'm present to their needs. You know, I work full-time job at a church that requires me to write 45 minutes of original Bible study teaching every single week, which limits the amount of time I can spend on supplemental reading because I read Bible commentaries and academics all week long. Um, and there was a time when that, that shift sort of took over and I felt as if I had created some kind of deficit in my um, creativity. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm not reading nearly as many novels as I used to read. And novels are my favorite medium of art, personally. Um, movies, a close second. And I can't watch as many movies as I used to watch because I only have this small window of time after they're all in bed. <laughs> and then I'm yeah, tired. Yeah, for sure. Um, and eventually I made my peace with that in that I think that there's a kind of, you know, like subconscious or even conscious apathy that one can, with which one can approach, approach art and entertainment, whereas they're just like, oh, I'm content to never read anything. I don't need to, you know, see any films or read any novels or listen to any music. Yeah, I'm just not that type of person. And I think that that person, with all due respect, needs to push themselves to find a certain form, a certain medium, a certain genre of art that they can appreciate and ask God to enrich their understanding of it, ask God to meet with them in that medium. Um, but for those of us who are like, 
no, we already really like art. We already like films and movies, and we wish we had more time for it. We're obviously at the mercy of our season of of life, and um, I would be reticent to tell anyone, you know, <laughs> well, make it your top priority to watch TV shows or something like that. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I do think that for us, those of us with evolving seasons of life, um, there is a kind of deliberate measure that we should take to accommodate the time that we can be spiritually enriched with art. So it's still a value of mine to read novels, one, just because I like to do it, and two, because as a writer, you know, I think that that's an important thing for me to do, and I want to push myself to read the kinds of things I wouldn't normally pick. So I just can't do as much of it as I did in a different season of life. Maybe I will be able to later, but I don't want that muscle to become um, atrophied. So, you know, mm. I push myself to complete a certain attainable page count a day or a week or whatever it might be. Or I make space in my um, rule of life, which is kind of like my the schedule by which I practice my spiritual disciplines, to go to the movies with my friends a couple times a month. Um, and so that we can, on the ride home, have a conversation about, oh, well, how did you interpret this and what did you like about this? And, you know, that's also uh, fulfilling a certain communal need that I have as a disciple of Jesus as well. So it's it's not a matter of, like, we don't have time because we all have the same time. It's a matter of, like, time management and making disciplined space for stuff that we know is important for our spiritual formation. So what is it that you want the reader to get out of with all its teeth, sex, violence, profanity, and the death of Christian art? I would love it if someone that is not already on board with my thesis came to this book, maybe even someone who doesn't think of themselves as an art enthusiast at all, read it and walked away feeling as if they now had a deeper understanding of a very valuable way that they can know um, God, meet with God, experience intimacy with God, understand the world, something to share um, with the Spirit of God in their discipleship to Jesus through art, um, and that, that their palette for what art is and can be would be wider, that they'd be pushed to um, entertain certain aesthetic, creative ideas that they might not have before, that they might have written off as either you know inappropriate or offensive or off the table for the disciple of Jesus, and to whatever it is that they, or whatever whatever changes in their appreciation of art and their practice of art, that they're going to engage it meaningfully within the community of God's people um, and with God himself. I just like for people to read it and think, huh, I really didn't realize how important this is to God, and I want to meet him in it. I almost forgot to ask this. <laughs> Where can people buy a copy of the book? Well, you can order it anywhere you like to order books. Uh, Amazon is obviously the big one, but you can get one from Barnes & Noble or Books A Million, wherever it is that you prefer to buy books. Thanks for this talk, Josh, and thanks so much for writing such a great book. Oh, Dan, thanks for having me. I had a great time. I appreciate it.